All right, let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue through this chapter. And we're going to be in this paragraph that we were in last week for one more week, and that's verses 12 through 16 primarily. I think verse 17 I'm going to attach to verse 18 and what follows, and we'll look at that next week. So it'll be verses 12 through 16 for this last week. Let's just read those verses. And let's pray and ask God to help us, and we'll go from there. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let's ask God's blessing upon this passage. Oh, Father, these words were breathed out by You through Your Spirit 2,000 years ago through the Apostle Paul, and they are true and they are trustworthy. And I believe, Father, they are designed by You to give assurance to the true children of God. And so I pray that even this morning, Your intention for these words would be fulfilled for Your people in this room and those who are watching online. I pray that by your Spirit, the true children of God would leave just in full assurance of your love, and that those who are not your children would leave unsettled, and that you would work in them to call out to you for salvation through Jesus so they too could be brought into a right relationship with Him. And Father, if any of that is to happen, it must happen by Your Spirit's power and not me. I confess my weakness and limitations and inability and ask now for the Spirit's help for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we really parked on verse 12, and we drew the reasonable conclusion that that verse draws. Uh, 
We use the word conclusion because he's drawing a conclusion here to what he's been teaching about the presence of the Spirit within the people of God. And the very presence of Christ through His Spirit inside the people of God, dwelling within us. Even as we just sung, holiness is Christ in me, and Christ in you. He's dwelling within us, giving us life and setting us free from sin. And he draws that conclusion, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That's a conclusion he draws. And the implication is that we are now debtors to live for God, live by the Spirit of God in our lives. But we're certainly not debtors to the flesh, and that only, of course, stands to reason. Just as we looked at in Romans 12:1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your rational service, it could be translated. This is a logical, reasonable conclusion to draw. The key to this passage, not just verse 12, but going on, and the real heart of it, of course, I think, is in the next verse. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit, here it is, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That is what people who have the Spirit in them will be doing. Now, before we go any further, I want to answer a question about this idea of putting to death the deeds of the body, and then we're going to leave that topic somewhat. But I thought of a couple more things I need to bring out. First of all, I want to answer a question. What does it mean to put the death of the deeds of the body by the Spirit? We talked about putting death of the deeds of body, and we have mentioned this idea of being by the Spirit. And of course, when we're putting death of the deeds of the body, the deeds of the body are simply the things we do with our body that are expressions of the desires of our heart. And we all have within us at times wrong desires, sinful desires, and those, those desires work their way out into our lives as we use the members of our bodies, like our eyes or our tongues or our hands or whatever it is, to do things that are wrong, to actually sin. And we're to put those deeds to the body, getting, as Graham taught, to the root of them in the heart and in the mind, and put them to death. But we need to talk just for a moment, about what it means to do that by the Spirit. Because as Graham brought out a couple weeks ago, anybody can really stop doing bad things in their lives. You can find drug addicts and alcoholics that get on the right program and with a little self-determination and help from others can actually stop doing those things and over a course of a period of time, actually not even really desire them much anymore. That's possible. 
possible to do for people who don't have the Spirit of God in them. But that would not really be gospel transformation. That wouldn't be putting those things to death by the, deeds, uh, by the Spirit because they don't even have the Spirit, you see. So what is unique about this? What makes this kind of obedience and this kind of killing sinful desires Christian in its fullest meaning? Well, let me just put up for you a passage of Scripture that I think will help us just make this into a concise thing or in a concise point. Ephesians 6, chapter, uh, verses 16 through 18 is all in the context of spiritual warfare for the Christian. We no longer wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. And he says this, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. So it's going to take faith. We know that, right? The just shall live by faith. Paul's already taught us this. It's more than just for justification. It's also for our pursuit of holiness. It's all by faith in Christ and what God has done and is doing in us with which you can extinguish all those flaming darts of the evil one that perhaps came at you even this week, tempting you and bringing you into wrong desires, and take the helmet of salvation that you just implant on your head, reminding yourself of this great salvation provided for you in Jesus. But now catch this, and this is what I want to connect over to Romans 8. And you take up, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Understand this. Putting to death the deeds of the body is a spiritual work. And spiritual warfare. To kill these wrong desires within you is a spiritual work. And the weapon you're given... To do this by the Spirit is the weapon of the Spirit, and that is the Word of God. It's interesting. The word for sword, many of you may have heard this, isn't for the really long sword you might think about in medieval times. It's more of a shortened dagger. And you connect that with the word for word here. The Word of God isn't logos, which we would often see in connection with the Word of God, which is generally the message or the entirety of it, but the word rhema, which means the individual utterances. And I think what Paul's getting at is here. It's the statements of Scripture given to us by the Spirit that we launch onto, that we remember that is our sword in the moments of spiritual battle and temptation. How are you going to kill those desires within you? You kill them with the sword of the Spirit. So an unholy and ungodly desire for sin creeps up in you and it's calling out for you to fulfill that desire by using your body, the deeds of the body. Answer this call, says your flesh, to do something or say something wrong. And you take the sword of the Spirit, which are the very sayings, those utterances of God. Maybe a a short statement if you're dealing with anger. And you might have something that Paul has said as an example. In Ephesians 4, you've got to put these away. Anger and wrath and malice and envy. And by doing that, you're putting it to death. Or the wrath of man does not 
produce the righteousness of God. And you're actually in that moment to the world's eyes like a crazy person reciting these words of God, these statements, and you're putting that desire right at the root to death. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and divides through everything and gets right at the heart of the matter. God intends for you to use your Bible, Christian, to use your Bible every day. Cannot mortify the deeds of the body in a Christian, spiritual, gospel way without the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that's one way, just very practical, right? How do we mortify the body? We use the sword of the Spirit. And then in verse 18 here, look what he says. What's the very next thing after the sword of the Spirit? Praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. You can't mortify the deeds of the body without prayer in the Spirit. And what's amazing is in those times of temptation, you're using the sword of the Spirit and you're actually praying the sword of the Spirit. And the Spirit is helping you, you see. This is why Jesus told the disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And in Ephesians 6, Paul's making it very clear, if you're going to do spiritual battle, even with your own wrong desires and the temptation that you experience, if you're going to do spiritual battle, it's going to require prayer in, by the Spirit, using the Word of God in your praying. This is part of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. If you're wrestling as an example with something with another person, a relational conflict, what the words we just read earlier in our liturgy about forgiving and forbearing, wouldn't that help to have those words in your mind and when you're getting irritated with somebody to attack it and pray those things in the Spirit so that He is helping you put them to death. These two things... Prayer and Scripture are the practical ways in which we mortify the deeds of the body by the Spirit so that we don't just become worldly people who want to break some bad habits or become nicer people or whatever it is. We're truly spiritual people. These are the people, they're doing those things. They're being led by the Spirit, you see. That's why these things like Spirit or like the, the, the Word of God and the prayers. These are called means of grace. Not in the Catholic sense of imparting to you grace that saves, but helping saved people grow in grace is what these are. God gives us these great gifts. As you know, you're actually experiencing one right now. If you come to a worship service every week to worship God, to sing praises to Him and to pray, to fellowship with His people and to listen to a message and to listen to the Scriptures read and recite some of them, partake in the Lord's table. These are means of grace to build up your soul. 
where we have prayers in the Spirit and we have the sword of the Spirit being put out throughout of it, all of it, helping you mortify the deeds of the body. One thing that will certainly help you backtrack or backslide in the Christian life and start doing more of the deeds of the body is a neglect of the weekly corporate worship service. That is a surefire way to not grow in holiness. So if your goal is to not grow in holiness, stop coming to church. That's one way to do it. But if your goal is to grow in holiness, you come to the assembly as God has designed for us. Let me say something, one more thing I wanted to bring out here before we move on. Something that I talked about last week, and I want to just press on it just for one or two more minutes because God is doing that with me in many ways. Putting to death the deeds of the body, killing sinful desires within us, will also require us saying no to things that in and of themselves are not forbidden by Scripture. They're not sinful in and of themselves. You would be free to do them. You'd be free to participate in these things. Because they're not sinful. There's no scripture that forbids them. But for you, they're not helping you put to death the deeds of the body. And as a matter of fact, too much of these things could actually be leading you inadvertently into more and more fulfillment of the desires of the flesh. You say, what things are these? Well, I don't tell you that. That's not my job. I don't make rules for you of what you can do and where you can go and what you can eat and drink or who you can be around. Those are some of our fundamentalist Baptist forefathers that like to do those things. I do not do those things. The Spirit will lead you into these things if you will allow Him to through His Word. These are areas in which you need to put these things aside if you really want to grow. You know, I was thinking about Hebrews 12.1 in this connection this week. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, listen to this now, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now picture this. We're to be running this race. We're running a race and what do you not want on you when you're running a race? is weight. Now, he says the weight and the sin. The sin is obvious. That's going to slow you down in this run. That's obvious. If you're doing sinful things, you need to repent of those things and find the grace to change in those ways. But these things are weights that you would have on you that are slowing you down What are they? He doesn't say. You have to decide that. What are the things in your life that are lawful, but they're just not profitable for you that you need to cut back on or maybe cut out entirely? Something that has taken too much of your heart's affections and desires. They're slowing you down in this race of holiness. And you say, well, those things bring me such happiness. And I enjoy them. But do you know what? What you will find 
is that as you get rid of things that are slowing you down in this race and your pursuit of holiness, you will find greater internal happiness. The things of this world do promise some temporal happiness and they deliver temporal happiness. But that soul yearning you have is not going to be fulfilled in those things. It's actually making you more unhappy than you realize. You remember what Jesus said, John 15, verses 9 through 11, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Who do you think, out of all the humans in history that have ever lived in this world, who do you think the most joyful human being to ever live was? Not a trick question, is it? Jesus. That's like in children's church, you say, you ask a question, it's always Jesus because they know they got about a 90% chance that's going to be right. But this is one of those times. Jesus was the most joyful man that ever lived. True joy filled even in suffering. How was that? By abiding in the Father's love. How did he do that? By keeping his commandments Isn't it interesting how we think, we've been trained to think that holiness and obedience and self-discipline and taking up our cross and putting things of the world away, we're we're trained to think, yeah, that's necessary, so I'll do it because it's what I'm supposed to do, but it's not going to make me happy. It's not going to bring me joy. Yet the Christians throughout history who have done this the most and learned this secret, they have been the most joyful of Christians. Friends, if you don't have joy in you, and we all come into these seasons, it may be time to do some real self-reflection about our lives, our habits, our choices, our entertainments, our time management, our money management, whatever it is, because most likely we have gotten off track in various places and we are not lined up under the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ that he says if we live that way and we obey those commandments he says this I'm not telling you this he says this that you will have joy you'll become a joyful person you will not find joy and peace in the things of this world not ultimate joy and peace. If your daily liturgy, your daily worship begins each day with you grabbing your cell phone and opening it up and checking social media or checking news or checking emails and already from the day, from beginning of the day, you're just filling, filling your heart with everything from the world. You cannot be surprised then that you have no joy. And if there is something that you have in your life, some kind of sin that is making you rather grab for that cell phone than to 
grab for the Bible because that sin you know is bothering you and troubling you and therefore you feel like there's this block between you and God, then friends, all you have to do is turn from that sin and cry out to Jesus Christ and experience the grace of the gospel that flows to repentant sinners. And then you will be freed up to seek God and His presence, which we are told in the Psalms to seek Him and His presence continually, you see. Well, anyway, verses 13 and 14, I'm entitling this, An Encouraging Condition. This is back in Romans 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, look at the conditions in verse 13. That's why I'm calling these conditions. You'll see the word if. If clues you in on there's a conditional clause here happening. On the one hand, and we've talked about this, if you are a person who lives according to the flesh, you will die. If you just live according to the flesh, it means you have no spirit within you, which means you don't have Christ, according to Romans 8, and all you have to look forward to is physical and eternal death with his separation from God forever. But he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, that is meant for us to be encouraging. That if you are a person who is actively, though imperfectly, putting to death the deeds of the body and turning from sin and pursuing Jesus Christ and trying to live for Him and walking in His ways, then friends, look at verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. That's why it's in. He's saying those who are putting to death the deeds of the body are those who are being led by the sons or the Spirit of God, and those ones are sons of God. So everyone who is on this journey, what Paul wants you to see is that everyone who is on this journey of holiness and is putting to death the deeds of the body. These ones are the ones being led by God, and they are the sons of God. Another passage here that you see, there's no commands. It's just a statement of fact. Who are the children of God in this world? It is the ones who are putting to death the deeds of the body, the ones who are being led by the Spirit. It's these ones who are the children of God. It's how they can be identified and how identify themselves as children of God. You can know you're a child of God by the sanctifying work that God is doing within you, you see. One of the ways God assures us of our salvation, and He wants you to be assured, is the work He does within you, the desires for holiness that He produces within you, and as you're following those, and as you're following after Christ, you are assured that you are a child of God. Now, we're not perfect. We know that. But we are like John Newton who said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. 
I am not what I hope to be in another world. But listen to this. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say that? Can you look into your life and say, I know I'm not what I want to be. I know what I, I'm not what I'm going to be in heaven. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. And God has grown me and is growing me. And I don't view sin the same way I did. And I'm turning away from it and I'm pursuing growth. If that is you, then friends, what Paul wants you to see is that take heart. As imperfect as you are, you are a child of God. I've got a couple messengers of Satan sent to torment my soul. (laughs) Be gone. Goodness. I'm going to have to move around a little bit or something. These verses, friends, and here's where I want to go with this. These verses are designed to give you assurance and comfort of your status with God. They're not designed by God to freak you out. These verses are glorious because they are designed by God to give the people of God comfort in the fact that if you are in this race, if you are battling your sin, if you are pursuing righteousness, no matter how imperfect, then you can take heart that you are the beloved children of God. That leads us to verse 15 in that relational confidence. The relational confidence, verse 15. Listen to this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you hear what he's saying? Even in your pursuit of holiness and obedience, the spirit we have isn't one of fear so that what you're doing, you're doing so that God won't punish you or that you'll one day get into heaven. I got to put to death the deeds of the body so one day I get into heaven. I got to obey God so he'll be happy with me. That's the spirit of fear. That's the spirit of an unregenerate Jewish person under the law of God. That's the spirit of the devout Muslim under the laws of Islam. They're afraid. And they don't want to stand before their God having not done everything they can do to be obedient to Him because they're afraid they will be cast away. They are afraid they will be punished. That's not the spirit that we've been given. Praise be to God. We've been given a spirit not of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, of sonship. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Friends, those terms are terms of relational Confidence. That word Abba is just an Aramaic transliteration of a term of endearment for a child to his or her father. Some have even gone as far to say Papa. 
God does not want his children afraid of him in that sense. Now, we read earlier that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not for the believer a terror, but an honor and a reverence, just as you're to have for your earthly fathers. But the relationship is one of father and son, of familial love and familiarity. And we cry out from our hearts by the Spirit. The Spirit enables us to do this. Cry out from our hearts just like Jesus did when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, He went away to pray and He cried these words, Abba, Father. And Paul says, you have the same spirit in you now that Christ had in him. You have that same relational cry to the Father as Jesus had in him. Because truly he is the firstborn among many brethren. Brothers and sisters brought into the same relational confidence with God. One based on love. And I'm convinced that in all true pursuits of holiness, this is where you've got to begin. A Christian needs to know he's pursuing holiness because he's loved by God. John put it this way in 1 John 4, verses 17 to 19. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have, listen to this, confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in this kind of love, you see. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. And in the Jewish mind and heart, of which John had, love is always expressed in obedience. God loves us, and therefore we love God through our obedience to God, you see. It is a familial, relational, intimate, personal relationship with God our Father who loves us. And He's given us His Spirit within us that actually enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. I want you to apply this next time you fail in sin. I want you to apply this principle the next time you fail and sin. And unless you die in the next five to ten minutes, you'll probably be able to apply it. You have sinned against this holy God. You have broken His commandment perhaps for the 80 millionth time. What are you going to do in that moment? Are you going to run away and fear from God and maybe take a little break from Him to kind of, you know, let Him cool off a little bit? Or are you going to go to the Father in humility, yes, but in confidence in the name of Jesus Christ, His Son, your Savior, and cry out to Him, Abba, Father, forgive this poor sinner 
and help this poor sinner to pursue righteousness in that area. You know what would have thrilled my heart as a parent? I couldn't remember, well, maybe this would be an exact, maybe there was a time or two this happened, but what would have thrilled my heart as a parent is if my child would have come to me, they had broken one of my rules, and let's say I didn't even know about it, they would have gotten away with it. And they came to me with a repentant heart and said, Dad, I sinned against you. I did this thing you told me not to do. Please forgive me. Now, any parent in this room knows or should knows, should know that your heart would be joyful in that moment because... That's true repentance. It would create joy. And if we, as Jesus said, being evil would respond that way, how do we think our Father responds when we acknowledge our sins to Him and by the Spirit's power, power cry out to Him, Abba, Father, because we know He is a righteous judge indeed, but He has executed His righteous judgment in His own Son on that cross 2,000 years ago. And that sin, the wrath for it is absorbed. We have a relationship with God we don't appreciate, I fear. This is something we cry out. We cry out, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. Friends, where does that come from? In the heart. This is a relationship that in the heart we're supposed to feel from God. We're supposed to be feeling the presence of God within us at times and knowing that He loves us. Do you have that kind of assurance as God's child? Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the spiritual, the Spirit-given confirmation. Do you want assurance that you're a child of God? No one else can give that to you. No one else can give that to you. They can give you verses that you can look at, but what has to happen, according to this verse, is that the Spirit Himself has to take those truths of the gospel and of God's love for you and actually testify with your spirit your inner man, affirming that you are a child of God. The Spirit does this work within you. It's an eternal thing He does for us. God doesn't just tell His children, you're my child and I love you. He actually gives us His Spirit who confirms it in our hearts. And wants us to feel that and enjoy that and be confident in that. Oh, how much God wants us to know He loves us. And I know what it is to actually preach messages like this, assuring the people of God of the love of God for them in Christ and not feel it myself at times. But there are times in which the Spirit 
indeed testifies with my spirit that I am a child of God and it puts me at ease and it creates with me, within me feelings of praise and worship. Do you have the assurance of God's love for you as a child? This becomes incredibly helpful in times of suffering. Back in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul said, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the Spirit takes the love of God and the assurance of His love and the assurance that you're His child and pours it out into your heart. And I'm going to tell you something you probably don't want to hear, but that grows most in suffering. That experiential knowledge of God's love for you is going to grow most in your suffering. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 5. He's not wasting it. As a matter of fact, when you come across suffering and enter into suffering, remind yourself and preach to one another. This is the time in which God now is really going to show you His love just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane who is crying out by the Spirit, Abba, Father. He's going to assure you of His love, grow you in His love, comfort you in His love. You say, Jess, yeah, but I've sinned so much. I just, I know God's loved me. I I know I'm a Christian, but I've sinned so much. How can He keep on loving me? How can He feel for me the same as He did before Do you want to know what the real answer to that is, Christian? Or one of the answers? Is that familial love that He set on you didn't begin when you believed in Jesus. Sometimes we think about God's love towards us as Christians as though it began when we believed in Jesus. It's not true. Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen to this in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, if you were to take your Bible and look at it like this as a timeline, because much of it is a timeline, right? And you go back, you go back to Genesis 1-1 and you get the beginning of time in the foundation of the world. And he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now what's interesting is that, and what you really need to sink your teeth into is this. God loved you and chose you in Christ before Genesis 1-1. He goes on here to say this, listen, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That's again not a command, that just happens for the ones He chooses, you see. In love, He predestined us, that is His people, for, same word as back in Romans 8, for adoption, for 
sonship to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. When did his adopting love get set on you, friends? Was it the moment you believed in Jesus? No. Everybody should say no, not according to the Apostle Paul. His adopting love for me as sonship was set on me before I was born, before anyone else was born, before the world was created. In the mind and heart on God, He set that eternal love on you, you see. Predestined you for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And this was all, friends, this was all according to the purpose of His will. Not yours. You didn't have a say in the matter because you weren't there. Your sonship your adoption into His family, His love for you, Christ Himself, the Spirit in you, is anchored in His will, not your own. When it comes to ultimate salvation, your will is not the determining factor. It's God's will. And He knew all your sins and all your failures, nothing you've done has caught Him by surprise. It's anchored in His will. Friends, Paul says, this is supposed to be a blessing for you to know. To believe that God chose you before the foundation of the world. Elected you is the word. To believe that, to know that, is supposed to be like, oh, praise to God. You want to do what we talked about earlier and have your heart filled with hallel? Get a good understanding of the doctrine of election. And by good, I mean biblical, Pauline, or John's view of it. Get a good understanding of election and adoption into his family that was set on you in love from before the foundation of the world. And you think about that, you meditate on that, you come to the conclusion where you believe it's true and your heart will be filled with hallel. You will praise the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has done this for us. Who has blessed us and brought us into His family. That's why you don't need to worry about losing this. You need to rest in that eternal love for you. And then out of that love, as God fills your heart with it, then you work out then these issues of holiness and obedience. We'll pick up where we left off next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for how clear Your Word is, and especially, God, how You do not want us doubting. You do not want us doubting Your love. Father, we read in Scripture about Your love for us, and it's as though we aren't permitted to doubt Your love. That it would be sinful of us to doubt Your love for us. And we praise You that Your love for us your children, was never contingent upon our actions because it's all in grace that you've done this. That's why it's to the praise of your glorious grace that you've showered on us in Jesus Christ. We praise you for that and even as we transition, Lord, to the table, the place and time in human history in which Jesus bought for us redemption from our sins. We thank you for that plan. Your plan that was 
designed from eternity past to provide for us the Savior we need in Jesus Christ. As we feast at the table now, will you nourish us in faith, remind us of your love. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.